Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 173rd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Andrew Leonard. Andrew is the founder of Geometric Wealth Advisors, an independent REA based in the Washington, D.C. area that oversees nearly $250 million of assets under management for 110 client households. What's unique about Andrew, though, is his decision to focus into a unique niche, serving the partners, the big three strategy consulting firms, Bain, McKinsey, and BCG propelling his firm to organically add almost $200 million of net new assets in just five years, almost entirely from a single white paper he wrote for his niche, and the ongoing one-meeting-close referrals he's been able to generate as a now-recognized expert in that niche. In this episode, we talk in-depth about what it really means to customize a financial planning process and experience to a particular type of niche clientele, the unique opportunities and challenges in working with management consultants who may make more than a million dollars a year and save $250,000 annually into their portfolios, but have been trained to analyze and scrutinize financial models and projections, how Andrew evolved his financial planning process to focus almost entirely on live interactive presentations of financial planning models using eMoney's Decision Center and eschewing the written plan altogether, and how Andrew combines in-person and virtual delivery to a clientele who are largely distance-based and spread across the country, and why Andrew ultimately decided to stick with a traditional assets under management model for a somewhat non-traditional niche clientele. We also talk about why and how Andrew decided to pursue this type of clientele in the first place, why he ultimately found it easier and more personally rewarding to work with high-income management consultants than the traditional retiree with significant retirement assets to manage, how he selected and narrowed down the type of niche clientele he wanted to pursue, the white paper marketing strategy he used to accelerate his growth after his first 10 niche clients, and why he finds that when focused on a niche, the biggest challenge is no longer how to market and attract high-quality clients, but the difficulties in finding the right kind of financial advisor talent to service that rapidly growing base of clientele instead. And be starting to listen to the end, where Andrew shares why he found it so emotionally draining to work with retired clients. The real-world challenges of deciding to pivot from what had been a more generalist practice for his first seven years into this deep niche focus, and the unique cost-benefit analysis tool that he created on his website specifically to demonstrate the value of a financial advisor to his hyper-analytical clientele. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Andrew Leonard. Welcome, Andrew Leonard, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It is great to be here. I've been a regular listener of this podcast since you launched it a few years ago, and I've been a regular reader of yours for much longer than that. So it is an honor to be here. Awesome. Welcome to the other side of the microphone. I guess it's not really the other side. Like, Welcome from going from the, the earbuds to the microphone side of the, of the podcast process. A really excited having you on and, and talking today about what to me is is a really interesting niche that I that I know you formed having lived many years and I guess we'll call it a generalist practice and then having a 
sort of a unique opportunity for a clean break and starting again from scratch and deciding to build the second time entirely focused into a niche and just how much faster it seems the version 2.0 with the niche is growing than version 1.0 as a generalist, having been on both sides and and talking about just w- what it's like when you decide to get more focused and and how you pick and how you build in that direction and, and how the offering evolves over time. Great. So as we as we kick off and get started, tell us a bit about just the advisory firm as it exists today. Sure. So Geometric Wealth Advisors is about five years old, started in 2015. Currently, the team is eight of us. There's three advisors, including myself, one power planner, one portfolio trader, two operations specialists. And then we also have a CPA tax partner who technically is 1099, but I think the services are, she has her own LLC, but the services are well integrated to the point that I think clients view her as part of the team. And in many ways, we do too. We provide comprehensive financial planning, portfolio management, and tax services to about 110 client families. We manage about $250 million in assets under management. And I think all that is pretty standard for a small, mid-sized RIA. But there are a few things that make us unique. One, as you mentioned, we have a very focused niche audience. Of the 110 client families, over half are partners at the top three strategy consulting firms, namely McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, if those names mean anything to you or your audience. And the of the remaining 50 or so client families, I'd say all of them, or nearly all of them, are within one let's say, standard deviation of that. So they are, many of them are former McKinsey, Bain, or BCG, now working (laughs) elsewhere, or partners at other top-tier professional services firms, private equity firms, investment banks, and law firms. Almost all of them are between the ages of 35 and 45, which is probably not a coincidence. I'm 39 years old. So I'd say the focus niche is, is one thing that makes us unique. I think a second thing is we serve those clients almost entirely remotely. The eight of us on the team are in seven different states and our clients are scattered where you would expect to find people at those firms. Large, dense metropolitan areas, DC, New York, Boston, Chicago, LA, those kinds of locations. Yep. And so we always do the first meeting, the first comprehensive meeting in person. So we fly to them for that. And thereafter, it is done largely over video conference, phone, email, and that's how our clients prefer it. Yeah. And I guess the last thing that I would point out as being unique is all three of the advisors, and I would expect all of our advisors going forward, are career changers from the industry that we now specialize in. And we can talk about how and why that happened and why it benefits our clients. But I think that's another thing that's unusual about us. So so let me start on the understanding the client side a little more. So I'm just doing napkin math, 250 of AUM, just over 100 clients. So like average client household is, is over $2 million of assets under management, which is a, a pretty 
sizable AUM client in and of itself for most firms, but you're, you've not only got an average client of two plus million dollars of AUM, but an average client with $2 million of AUM who's still in their late thirties or early forties and maybe a like got to 2 million by early forties and B maybe plowing more dollars into that for another decade or two at that pace, which is a lot of dollars moving around. Yeah. And actually maybe it'd be helpful to zoom out a little bit and just sort of describe what strategy consulting is and sort of how, how that came to be true yeah, help us understand just because I, I think for most people in the advisor world, we don't we don't live the base, Bain BCG McKinsey right. world of what that business and what it looks like and why apparently there's a lot of money moving around in that community. Help us understand that that business a little bit more and and just where all these dollar flows are coming from. Yeah, I would be happy to. I'd say in an oversimplified description strategy consulting firms are teams of very smart people who are hired on limited engagements, typically lasting a few months to a few years to help their clients solve strategic problems. And the, you know, the clients are typically very big corporations, but it's also sometimes governments or government agencies or nonprofits. And the consultants at those firms are typically MBAs from top business schools or, or, pre-MBAs from top colleges, and they work rather hard, long hours. They're usually on the road two or three nights a week for the entirety of their career. I would say it's a, it's a hard job, not compared to you know soldiers or coal miners or firefighters, but to the rest of us nerds, it's a tough job. And it's, therefore, a, it's a hardcore nerd job. Yeah. Like, and, and therefore... Most of them sort of don't have the energy or ability to do it for that long. I'd say most of our clients are in, intending to work until they're, or at least work at these firms until they're early 50s. You don't see too many 65-year-old partners walking around the halls of these firms. Okay. And, you know, I guess fortunately for, for them, the only way that that's possible is they are they are highly compensated. And... There are, there are nuances to each of the firms, and so I don't want to lump them all together and without sort of violating any sensitivities around proprietary information. Sure, I'm, I'm sure they've all got their own compensation rules, but I mean, put us in the, in the neighborhood here. Like, What kinds of income levels are we talking about? Are these people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year? It depends on the seniority, even within the partnership spectrum, and it can it can vary widely. And I would sort of say maybe it's helpful to report our, our average client saved into their portfolio that we managed last year right around two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if you sort of back from there, the average client saved two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So that means a you know maybe need a, a another pittance like maybe another 250 to live if your income's that high half's going to taxes so like th- these are people that may actually be making a million dollars a year of top line income yes that's fair to say very very high income folks this is even just sort of affluent households overall as we measure by classic wealth accumulation cuz 2 million dollar portfolios are quite sizable but these are really really high income folks. 
Yeah, they are. And, you know, I can, I, I'd be happy to sort of tick through the reasons why they've, they've proven to be a great niche for us. And it is not just the economics, although, you know, that is obviously a strong suit. They're also just incredibly bright, hyper analytical. And I think, you know, one, they sort of intuitively appreciate our investment philosophy, which we'll probably get to, and don't sort of require the same level of handholding. I think that they also, I guess the counter to that is they keep us honest intellectually. You know, every recommendation we need we make needs to be intellectually consistent uh-huh. or or they will they will poke holes in it, which definitely has made us better over time and make sure we can, you know, meet that bar. Yeah. They're also just really, really busy. You know, most of these people have young families and are on the road several nights per week and therefore, you know, the time they have at home they want to spend at home and not on their personal finances. So I found that the people we work with are happy to have found advisors who they view mm. as their professional peers who they can just sort of fully outsource everything to. And that's a role we are proud to serve. And then I guess a couple other things that I've sort of grown to appreciate about the niche, which I have admittedly did not <laughs> foresee in advance, but have but have grown to appreciate. One is they sell advice for a living, just like we do. And therefore, Hmm. they appreciate the concept of paying a fee for something as intangible as advice. And I think they just get it in a way that, you know, other very smart people who don't do that may not, you know, an executive at Procter & Gamble, where the company makes (laughs) makes products, might not view it the same way. The, The other thing I've grown to appreciate, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it, is they are almost universally good people or at least good to work with and i think i think it's just the nature of the business they work in a team environment in somewhat intense circumstances for long periods of time and so if you've made it to be a partner if you if you've been <laughs> successful in that environment for 10 or 15 or 20 years you're probably nice to work with maybe put another way hmm. they do a good job of weeding out the jerks and so right. by the time you know they they reach us we are fortunate that that I think they're all good people they are they are in aggregate extremely charitable both with their you know dollars and their time and their expertise in some I, they're sort of my people they're they're people I like spending my days with and I think the rest of our team feels the same way so lots of questions that are are coming to mind here in, in, in part, but I want to come back to it in a few minutes of, of like, okay. So, I mean, everyone wants, wants clients who make lots of income and have lots of dollars. So how do we get them? But I'll I'll come back to some of the marketing discussion and kind of how you find them and reach them in, in a few minutes. I, I also just want to understand a little bit more of what the service offering looks like for them. And, and, you know, I, as I think we'll talk about in a bit, like, You've lived, I'll call it a more traditional wealth management firm and role as well that that didn't have the specific niche, but did the broader, you know, we do financial planning investments for for individuals, families, and institutions. So talk to us about what the actual financial planning process looks like with these folks. You know, when you when they say you fly out to them, do initial meeting, they say, Andrew, this this seems awesome. You know our people. I want to work with you. Let's go. What comes next once someone actually says, yes, I want to work with geometric wealth and I'm going to do a financial plan with you? Yeah. And I think the financial planning process will sound a lot like others, 
just with every step tailored really specifically to the niche that we work with. So we, we generally describe scope of services as being categorized into four buckets, all of which apply to all of our clients. The first, of course, is financial planning. Everyone everyone defines that differently. Even everyone listening to this podcast defines it differently. Yep. We define it as for every family, we build a comprehensive model of their financial projections going forward and use that as a framework for near-term decision-making. And so we do that you know, primarily in e-money, but a lot of it gets modeled outside of e-money in Excel because it's sort of more complex than e-money can handle and, and, and needs to be done in Excel. But ultimately, sort of we build these comprehensive projections along with alternative scenarios and use that as the framework for decision-making, meaning under the base case, we might project that the client is on track to reach financial independence where work becomes optional whether or not they choose to exercise that option or not, in X years. And then whatever decision they're considering, whether it's leaving the firm or buying a different house or buying a second house or sending the kids to private school versus public school, in each case, we quantify it in terms of how many years forward or backwards does that push financial independence. And that's how it's framed to the client. That's what the deliverables are. And I think that just speaks to them. That, that It is a hard job. As I mentioned, nearly all of them are considering, you know, how much, how, how long can I do this? And, and none of them have really ever properly quantified it. So we consider it our role to do it. But that's an interesting framing that like, you're not accumulating dollars towards dollar goals. You know, we're going to try to get you to $3 million or $5 million or whatever it is. And then, you know, you may be a million or dollars higher or lower, depending on the Monte Carlo distribution of, of returns. You're, you're framing it in, in, uh, as I like to think of it, like not the vertical axis, like how much does your wealth grow to you're framing it on the horizontal axis. Like how long down the path does it take before you get to that financial independence transition point because if they get there earlier and that's their goal they're not going to keep accumulating they're going to pull the trigger earlier or at least be able to pull the trigger earlier right so, some might some won't and we do sometimes get asked that question sort of the what's my number question how much do i need to accumulate and we try to explain i, I think that's the wrong question to ask it's sort of we can do better than that if by building the comprehensive model that's inclusive of any of everything and dynamic to when you want to stop working. And I do think that that frames it in a way that they appreciate. You know, everybody listening knows that financial planning ultimately just sort of comes down to deciding among trade-offs. And so to the extent that clients are wanting us to help them decide, you know, sometimes they ask, how much house can I afford? Or can I afford to, to leave? And the answer is always, you know, you can afford a lot of things based on your current income. That's not the right question. The right question is, what are the trade-offs if I do this? And specifically, how much further back does it push financial independence? And then we can have an honest conversation once we have quantified it about how valuable is one versus the other. How valuable is the bigger house compared to not having to be obligated to work in your current position for you know X more years? And that ends up being sort of the, the centerpiece of the relationship is those conversations. Interesting. So to me, just really kind of emphasizes that 
natural course of career flow for the partners in these firms that like these are not people that are going to do at least this work until their 60s and 70s because it's so intensive and the burnout rate is so high it's it's you know they're they're working knowing that they're not going to be able to do it for the long long run and so everything gets framed to the like yeah you're really tired of the time on the road and all the travel and the rest and not seeing your family as much well okay, then let's talk about how many more years you're going to do that if you decide to buy that other house and and put it into that you know time horizon to financial independence, time horizon to burnout framing and and then let them make the decision in that in that sort of niche specific context. Yeah, and I want to be careful to clarify, you know these these are the opposite of of sweatshops. They're typically among, the top ranked, you know, best places to work list nationally that, that you see. I think, I think Bain was number one for the last few years running. They, they treat their employees wonderfully in a variety of ways because they have to, right? Because they, because otherwise right. you got super smart people and you are working them really hard. So right. like be awesome for them or just watch them leave. And then you can't do what you do and charge what you charge. And they have, right. They have a lot of options. They, you know, they could work, go work for their client or they could do a lot of other things. And so right. the employers treat them extraordinarily well and deserve to be recognized as such. And then when it comes to, yeah, the, how much does each person value financial independence? I don't want to make it seem like that's top of the list for everyone. There, there is a spectrum of if on one end, is I want to work for as long as I am physically and mentally capable of doing so. And on the other hand is if I you know, saw the math and believed it, that I could stop working tomorrow and never again have to earn another dollar from my labor, I would do so. And hmm. you know, most people are somewhere in between. And we have a right. good sense for every one of our clients where they fall on that. And that drives the conversation of trade-offs. Like how badly do you want do you want the financial independence is going to be different for everybody. And so from the planning and like just the the actual tools, you know, what not with saying the fact that nominally financial planning software is built to do retirement projections. Like, are you able to do this in e-money? What is like what does that look like? Yeah. So like I said, some some of it gets gets built outside of e-money and then and then plugged in specifically, you know. Almost all of our clients invest in private equity vehicles through through their firms, not not through mm. us, and sort of projecting forward the capital call and distribution schedules of those can't be can't be done any money and a variety of other sort of complexities like that get done outside. Ultimately, for those sort of familiar with e money, it gets baked into a projection that is the decision center, and the decision center also allows you to toggle on various scenarios and under each we can if we define financial independence as again never having to work again and earn another dollar from your labor and and not have to worry about money in retirement you know so not just not run out of money before end of life but not have to worry about it we sort of quantify that as we have to set, set an end of life buffer of portfolio value and that might be different for everyone depending on their you know spending and also just their comfort with spending down in retirement and once you have that you can sort of toggle forward or backwards retirement ages to determine when they reach that number when they comfortably exceed that number 
So Decision Center works for some of the retirement timing trade-offs. Your challenge is, is some of the investment vehicles that get used in particular that just, yeah, I, I get it. Like private equity investments with capital calls are not not really well built for financial planning software. Yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, I think there are certain things eMoney does well and certain things they do less well. And so some of the things they do less well, we have built models on our own and sort of integrate the two. And you know, I, I think eMoney is great for the long term. It's not great for short term projections. So anything that requires that we often do in Excel. I think it could be a little bit better on sort of education savings, which is obviously sort of relevant to clients in the age group that we work with. And so we do a lot of that in our own modeling in Excel. And then sort of the, the output from Excel becomes an input into eMoney. And that's how we do the projections. And what, what other short-term stuff is a challenge? Like, what are you doing that's short-term oriented in, in the context of all these like financial independence trade-off projections? Yeah. You know, a short, an example of a short-term thing that needs to be done in Excel, if, if someone sort of wants to put a down payment on a home in, you know, nine months or, or 15 months, they're going to mm-hmm. receive okay. one or two bonuses between now and then. You know, e-money is a bit of a blunt tool in that things are entered as one calendar year. And if you need to be more nuanced than that in terms of timing, that needs to be done outside. Oh, right. Well, and, and particularly in a world when you get people that are like literally making seven-figure income, like the the timing of that income and exactly when it hits relative to their bills and their cash flow kind of matters a lot. Like if you don't get the $300,000 bonus until November, you kind of can't buy the house until November because <laughs> you need the cash and that's when the cash hits. Right. So very, I guess, cash flow planning basically is is the short is the shorter term stuff. Just dollars in, dollars out of the household, recognizing that you have rather large dollars that move in and out. So the the larger dollar amounts just put more pressure on getting the timing right, or you you literally won't have the cash. Right. Well, so, and and you know we do we do all of our projections are cash flow based. We've done a lot of experimenting with with goals based and Monte Carlo, and I've just found it very difficult to make it actionable for our client base. You know, if you go from, I personally find it difficult to sort of take anything away from, well, under this scenario, you are 72% likely to achieve financial independence in seven years. And under this year, 57%. And, 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 you know, I know that reasonable people can disagree on that one. We found that cash flow based is right for us. And so what does this look like from a meetings perspective as you're as you're going through the planning process or are you a like meeting number one, we gather data, meeting number two, we present the plan, meeting number three, we implement? Do you have a different structure? What's the the actual cadence of just how you do this and get clients through it in uh in a particular when you're doing this in a virtual world because you may not be going back out to see them again in person after they came on board? Yeah, so almost every client relationship just starts with an intro- introduction from an existing client. You know, this is part of the power of the niche is they recognize the value provided and are more likely to tell others, tell their colleagues. And so we typically start with a 1-hour introductory call where we just learn more about the client and then typically walk through our scope of services specifically as it relates in their situation. And so, you know, that is financial planning, portfolio management, tax services. And 
what we call collective buying power, which we can also talk about in a minute. From there, the client typically, you know, maybe we do one or two more calls from there, but typically that's it. And they say, this sounds good. And we fly out to see them. Typically two of us, the two advisors will fly to see them. And we do what we call the comprehensive conversation, which is a three hour meeting covering everything we need to essentially generate two outputs. One is a proposed investment plan going forward specific to their situation. And two is, you know, to gather many of the inputs necessary to ultimately build that that model in e-money. And so that conversation is just structured like a lot of financial planning conversations are. We go through income and expenses, sort of now and in the future. We walk through their current balance sheet, assets and liabilities. We talk about insurance. We talk about tax. We talk about estate planning. We talk about risk tolerance, which is sort of why it takes three hours. So this meeting, have they already said they're going to be a client at this point, or are you still ultimately in proposal phase and have to close them at at the end of or after this meeting? Yeah, technically the latter. I would say some potential clients view view it as the first financial planning meeting with their new advisor, and some view it as evaluating us. I think given that we are, you know, they know we are flying out to them. They, most of them, have sort of made the decision before they ask us to do that that they're going to work with us. And there's only been a small handful who have not become clients after that meeting. And yeah, that's just a sort of a risk we're willing to take that that might happen, and and we're okay if that happens. They're sizable clients. It's an extremely warm lead. They're already in your niche. You, they don't really have anybody else to talk to who does what you do. So. I would imagine the close rate's pretty darn high at that point anyways. Yeah, and and you know even from that first introductory call, you know, we ha- I can talk about how that works, but the close rate for those in the niche is even from that first conversation is very very high and I think we're unique in that one of the criteria we use when evaluating a potential new client whether or not we are going to accept them, which I I recognize the good fortune in in even being able to sort of say that, but one of the criteria we use is, do we believe that we are the single best, you know, advisor or firm in the country for this client? And that's sort of a ridiculous claim to make unless you are only working with a very, very narrow slice of the world, right? Unless you are a, a specialist that's not going to be the case. I guess I should say, unless you're Michael Kitsis and you are a robot pre-programmed with all the world's you know, financial planning knowledge, which by the way, is not me, is not any of us, right? Unless, unless that's you, the only way you can you know, make that claim and not be delusional is if you hyper-specialize. And so we view it through that lens and we, are, we take that really seriously. So like, uh, you know, here are the people that were the best at, and if you're one of the people in that in that niche, then kind of by definition, we're the best for you. So why would we not work with you? And if we're not the best for you, then this isn't the fit because we're not the best for you. Right. And in those instances, which which might be, you know, upwards of may, maybe more than half of the introductory calls, we are not the best for them. And we and we say it as soon as we know it. And in those cases, we consider it our responsibility to try to help them find the advisor or firm who is the best. And, you know, we, we're probably better at searching for that than they are. 
And so we use, you know, all the search tools, including your XYPN find an advisor, search by specialization. And if, you know, depending on how they define their own identifying characteristics, maybe it's profession, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's demographic, maybe it's psychographic. And we try to help them find the best advisor for them, which ideally is someone who is specialized in their needs. And if not, we have a handful of generalist firms that we think are great. And we point them in that direction, which took <laughs> took a little bit of time and, and growing confidence to be able to do. Some, some of these would be great clients economically, but if we're sort of going to be honest with ourselves and say, you know, we know another advisor who would be better for you, I kind of can't imagine taking that client. And so I think we can feel pretty good about making that sort of somewhat ridiculous sounding claim that we're the best for the small niche we work with. The way I put it sometimes is, and by the way, Michael, I learned a lot of this from you over the years, from from your pounding the table about the benefits of specializing, et cetera. So thank you for that. My pleasure. <laughs> but the way I like to put it is the old way of the world was someone decides they need a service provider, whether it's an advisor or an accountant or an attorney or anything else. And they find someone within driving distance of their home who is suitable. <laughs> and Technology allows for the new model being decide you need a service provider, find the person in the world who has the expertise most specific to what you need, and work with him or her. And that sort of just seems like a better mousetrap for everyone. The, the client gets better service. The, the provider can tailor their services and processes and systems and expertise around that. You know, there's more value created in whole, and and I think the the world is a better place with that model. So I have come to appreciate that over the years, and yeah, I think we're probably pretty far down that spectrum towards towards niche only now. Okay, I love the framing around it and just the deep focus of no, like seriously, here's who we're going to be the best at, and we're not going to lose any of these clients because. There's literally no one who's better at this than we are for these particular people. And then you get into these, as you've noted, like incredibly high close rates. I mean, just to talk about like, yeah, we close most of our multi-million dollar clients off of a single video call. It's kind of interesting thing just to reflect on. Like this is what happens when you get deeply known in a particular niche and specialization. Yeah. The example I like to give is I have an advisor friend who is in a formerly in a study group with me, who is a former United Airlines pilot and now an advisor only for United Airlines pilots. And I can assure you, <laughs> if if a potential client who is a current or former United Airlines pilot ever calls me, we will be referring him or her to my friend. And I love it when I hear people who hyper-specialize and I love hearing about how they do it and how they tailor their services and build their whole firms around that. And, you know, I think it's, it's a better mousetrap. So continue taking me through the, the meeting process. So there's an intro call, you know, you got introduced to us somehow, probably through the niche, talk about what you do and why you're super specialized at it for being BCG McKinsey partners. They say they're interested or, or agree on the spot. You set up your flight, you go fly out to them, you do the comprehensive conversation to learn everything, get everything, kind of build up to a proposed investment plan and gathering the inputs you need to to build the the plan or the model, as you would put it. So what comes next? 
Yeah, so we follow up about a week after that with the proposed investment plan, which sort of starts with their long-term goals and works backwards through our investment philosophy, the methodology, and sort of really detailed prescriptive how their portfolio will be managed. And we send that to the client, typically iterate back and forth on that a couple of times, given who we work with, they often like to have input into that. And then assuming we reach alignment on that, which we almost always do, yeah, then we all sign that investment plan and they sign the firm's engagement documents and we're off and running. And so then it's our job to do all of the account opening, account transfers, restructure the portfolio, et cetera, and in tandem, start to build that comprehensive model. And once we sort of have the have that draft of the model built, we set up a screen share call with the client where we share it. And often that ends up with a couple of iterations for additional modeling. Ultimately, we reach a place where like, okay, this, <laughs> this is the model for now, knowing that life is going to change tomorrow and six months from now and a year from now. And once sort of that that first version of the model is in place, then we follow up with sort of a one-page executive summary of their base case, like the most likely outcome, and then the handful of scenarios of things they are considering. And in each case, quantifying when they hit financial independence under each of those. So once that's done, that's what we consider onboarding. But obviously from that flows all of the other components of financial planning. So you don't actually create sort of the traditional like the plan, capital T, capital P, like here's the here's the 27 page or 57 page e-money printout of stuff. It sounds like you're you're looking at these models in, I guess, in decision center, mm-hmm. in the screen shares, deciding what scenarios they want to look at, showing them some of the trade-offs, and then the only thing that actually gets written at the end is the one-page executive summary. Here's your base case and your various scenarios and how the trade-offs will hit your financial independence threshold. Correct. And that has been determined. That process has been determined over time based on what our clients wanted, how they wanted to engage with us. Interesting. Well, I think you know, for what are otherwise very analytical clients on the one end, I think a lot of us have struggled with sort of the analytical, the quote, engineer type clients, because they ask so many questions, want so many iterations of the plan, look at so many different versions. And so I'm, I'm struck that just you, you, in essence, you're handling that by saying, fine, let's just do the software interactively. I'll, I'll, I'll queue up all the scenarios you want. Let's just grab the little sliders and look at them right here. My goal at the end is just to find out which ones you particularly want to look at or focus on. And that's what we're going to commemorate in the executive summary and and start building action items from. Right. And the first time we do that, we definitely walk through the inputs themselves because most of our clients want to see it. That They are all people who have built models in their life and they know a model is only as good as the inputs. And so the first time we share it, we sort of walk through the Excel versions of the model. We walk through the inputs in eMoney and sort of then ultimately... You know, the, the fun part of the conversation is in eMoney's decision center and sort of the sandbox of toggling different scenarios on or off. Typically, you know, once they've grown comfortable with us and seen, you know, the rigor that we are using on the inputs and what, what our assumptions are based on, et cetera, most calls thereafter, most, most times we share the model 
is, you know, we're just looking, doing the latter part. We are just looking at the decision center and the scenarios and what they want to see. Sometimes they don't even want that. Sometimes they will email us and ask, you know, a scenario they'd like to evaluate. And we try to get back to them within a day or two with, with just the one page summary of here's the base case and here's how it looks with that scenario. And I think that just speaks to the audience we happen to work with. When I'm struck even just down to the to the language, like you, you know, for for being in the financial planning realm and wearing the hat as a financial planner, I mean, it, it it's very striking to me. Like you don't call it a plan, you call it the model. Yeah, because I guess in in management consulting world, I'm presuming that that's what they do. They they build models for all the different strategic planning stuff they're due to figure out what the impact of this strategic initiative might be on the business. So. Strategy consultants live in a world of models, so you don't build plans, you build models because that's the language they know and they're familiar with. Exactly. So how do you balance, I am curious, just the kind of the the timing of the sequence. I know for a lot of firms, there's sort of the back and forth discussion of like how much how much planning do we do before the investment stuff? How much can we do alongside the investment stuff? Obviously, I don't want to implement a bunch of the investments and then find out the portfolio needs to be very different given what it turns out happens on the planning side. How do you think about or, or balance that out when it sounds like you've done some level of investment proposals before you do, quote unquote, the plan or like fully build out the model and the interactive model? Like, How do you balance those two of trying to get to an investment proposal that's consistent with the plan or the model, but you haven't fully done all the model stuff as you start doing the investment plan stuff. Yeah. And the sequencing depends on the client. There are, there are clients for whom, you know, the, the amount of risk that's going to be taken in the portfolio needs to be an output of the model. And therefore, you know, that needs to just be a placeholder until we do the modeling. There are also clients who, who sort of need, other components of the service before they need either of these things. You know, they might need to go deep on a tax issue or a lending issue or an insurance issue. And we prioritize it based on what the client needs. I think for most of our clients, and and this might be unique, like they all have the ability to take a high, a high amount of risk. And, and to the extent that one's risk tolerance is a function of a million different things sort of broadly categorized into ability, need, and willingness to take risk. Most of our clients have a high ability and very low need to take risk. And therefore, a lot of the the, the risk of the portfolio should be driven by their willingness to take risk, which is sort of the human emotional element. And we have gotten good at having that conversation in person, in that comprehensive conversation, and asking the necessary questions to get at one's willingness to take risk such that by the end of the conversation, we feel pretty comfortable about what the investment plan should be. And so it, it, is, it isn't for our clients often a output of the model, but when it is, we sequence accordingly. Well, yeah, I guess it's an interesting point that just the, the income and the dollars are so high and just the sheer savings, I guess, from a practical perspective, like they don't have to save and invest and systematically compound their money for 30 or 40 years to collect a million or $2. They just have to save for the next 48 months. And there's a million dollars at least when they're saving 250000 a year. So, I mean, like long-term compounding still matters and adds up, particularly if they've got a, a pretty good-sized lifestyle. But just the 
does strike me there's sort of a compressed time horizon to their work because they don't necessarily want to do this until their 60s and 70s. And there's so much dollar savings going in that whether or how much they save is just overwhelmingly more the driver than necessarily even what their investment returns over are, are over the next five or 10 years. Yeah, the way we sometimes put it is, you know, if we looked at a properly constructed balance sheet for our given client, their human capital, the present value of their future earnings or future savings, which is currently invisible on their balance sheet, would sort of dwarf the rest of it for most of them because they're in their 30s and they're going to be working for at least 10 more years and earning a lot over that period of time. And so that does create a very high ability to take risk, but you should also honor the low need to take risk. And most of them can accomplish their goals, taking very little or at least a, a lower than age would suggest amount of investment risk. And that should be respected. And so a lot of it does come down to the personal, psychological, emotional part of it. What is one's willingness to take risk? And so we have sort of have to have to help them get in touch with their emotions on that one. So talk to us about your four buckets of value. You'd, you'd mentioned them briefly uh, of financial planning, portfolio management, tax, and what you called collective buying power. So uh, just walk us through each of these in turn of, of what you do. We, we've covered the financial planning end, but talk to us about sort of the additional pieces of what you do, how you offer it, what the service is for, I guess, clients or, or how it's specific for this kind of niche clientele. Yeah. And I on the financial planning, I would mention, you know, the model, the plan, a lot of things flow downstream from that, right? Like we are we need to advise on how much and what type of insurance to get and how and when to start in estate planning. And, and I, you know, none of that can be done unless a good model is in place. And so all of it flows from that. And we are obviously advising clients on all of that. And then when those things are needed, referring out to third-party experts in each of their cities who also sort of happen to work well with this niche. And so finding those experts who can serve a McKinsey partner in every city is part of what we try hard at. So yeah, I guess that's the that's the financial planning bucket. On portfolio management, and I'm sure we'll get into my background a little bit later, but we are pretty far down the spectrum of passive investing. We We are firm believers in the efficiency of markets and we manage portfolios accordingly. So we, you know, that means for most clients, it is a portfolio of Vanguard and especially dimensional funds managed holistically across their families' accounts. We use TD as our custodian, Orion for portfolio management and, and client portal on the on the portfolio side. And I guess a, a unique part of it for, well, first I should say, you know, that approach appeals to our audience. Almost all of our clients have, have been to business school, have heard, have seen how the sausage is made on the active management side, and I believe rightfully mm. skeptical of that. And so, you know, it appeals to them that no part of our value proposition is our predictive abilities. We don't think we can pick winning securities or time the market or pick managers who can do either of the above. And so all of the value has to come from everything else. That being said, there are 
there are right and wrong ways to do passive investing, especially across multiple account types with different tax treatment and nuances for every client. Specific to our clients, you know, like I said, each of the, those three firms has access to certain private equity investment options, and they're different at every firm. And momentarily setting aside my belief of whether or not they should participate in them, almost all of them do. And so part of our portfolio management process has to be thoughtfully integrating those investments into the portfolio that we manage. You know, those are, in some cases, a significant portion of the portfolio, and we need to manage around them. And so sort of coming up with a thoughtful approach to that, including when each of those opportunities rolls around for them, helping them to model forward what the appropriate commitment to them is in their unique situation. That's sort of a big part of what we do on the portfolio management side and clients appreciate that just because, you know, they don't have to, they don't have to explain to us what those are. Uh, We, we have well-worn plans for, for what to do with them and how to integrate them. And, and out of curiosity, you, you mentioned around interacting with clients, you use Orion for portfolio management and client portal. You, you've, you've also mentioned you're doing e-money and have got decision center. So uh, just curious, like how do you decide Orion portal versus e-money portal when you were figuring out which one to roll out to clients or do, or do they actually use both? Yeah, no, we just use the Orion portal. And I mean, like every other decision we make, business planning otherwise, it's what do we think will resonate with our audience? And yeah, I mean, evaluated all the portals and came to the belief that Orion's was best for our clients. That said, we have lots of <laughs> suggested ways that Orion could improve that portal, but it is the least worst option right now. Was there a particular trigger point for you of just why the Orion portal over the e-money portal when you're when you're choosing them? Yeah, I mean, I think our clients do understand the investment process probably better than most. And I just think sort of the way that Orion displays the portfolio and allows you to see your allocations holistically across accounts and over whatever period of time you want just correctly speaks to our clients. Okay. Because again, the... These are these are quantitative analytical spreadsheet people. Like you, you, you have to meet a fairly high bar for the rigor of how investment numbers are presented, or they're just going to flag it. <laughs> yeah, and and one of the promise we make is when you log on to your investment portal, everything is going to look exactly as we proposed it would in the investment plan. We are not using our judgment; we are executing the plan for our mutually agreed decision making and i think clients appreciate that we deliver on that you know they they see that every asset class is within tolerance every time they log in and and they appreciate that then talk to us about the third piece which is tax so again sort of a i think a pain point for for this audience and, and maybe just sort of the broader niche of high earning mid career professionals is always tax and it's both sort of finding a good provider to help you with them and the feeling that maybe you're paying too much and you know integrating all of it with the rest of what you do for financial planning and portfolio management. So I yeah, right from the start decided that that would be part of the service we provide. So par- we partnered with 
a third-party CPA who herself sort of has a similar niche audience as we do. And she does the tax preparation, filing, and sort of year-round consulting and year-end planning for nearly all of our clients. And, you know, the benefits being, one, she's quite good, she's talented, two, just having the two integrated is helpful to the client. You know, it makes us better at our job to have full visibility into the tax stuff and her better at her job to have full visibility into the planning side. And the client doesn't have to coordinate any of that, which speaks to, you know, how busy they are. And third, her services are included in the fee that they pay to Geometric. So yeah, quote unquote, free to the client. So just out of the collective fees that you're charging clients, you pay her directly from the firm and it's just, it's an expense to the firm for the aggregate service that you provide. Right. And just wondering like why partner with an outside CPA as opposed to literally like hiring your own W2 employee to be a CPA? Is that a, a capacity issue or a business strategy decision? Like, how did you decide external partnership versus fully internal tax preparation? Yeah, I th- the honest answer is we didn't have enough clients when we started to to have someone in house for that. So we started the we started as the outsource model, and as we have grown, sort of maybe we are reaching the point now where it starts to make ex- economic sense to bring it in house. And I would say that is something we talk about a lot. Okay, I, I actually do think bringing in in-house, whether or not it makes sense economically, would marginally improve the client experience. And to the extent that we can do that, sort of that drives most of our decisions. So right. that, that that would be the argument for doing it in the next year or two. And I imagine that we will. So, right. The math gets pretty straightforward at some point, just, you know, X clients times Y dollars per client at some point when you add it up, we'll be like, oh, we're actually literally spending how much it would take just to hire a full-time person to do this. So we may as well just hire a full-time person to do this. Yeah. And there, you know, there are other factors too. You know, there's, there's the client experience, which argues for doing it. There's the, there's also just sort of the, I'm afraid I don't want to lose focus because as, as many RAs who have in-house tax services will tell you, it, it often is, you know, 90% of the headaches in the firm are, are on the tax side. All of that needs to be weighed in. But the honest answer is like the economics weren't even an option at the start. And now that it is, it's a, it's a broader decision. And it's one that I think we will do pretty soon. And then talk to us about the the fourth prong. So, you know, a lot of firms out that, well, most of us do financial planning, most of us do portfolio management, a number of firms do tax or some kind of tax relationship. What is collective buying power? <laughs> yeah. This fourth pillar of value to clients. Right. For lack of a better term, we call it collective buying power. So a few a couple of years ago, just sort of thinking about this client list we had started to build and realizing that it's a pretty desirable cohort of folks for sort of any financial institution to work with, certainly any lending institution. And we should do more things to leverage that for them. And so the big one there is just a a partnership with a private banking group that is willing to lend to our clients, including mortgage lending, at discounted rates, both because they recognize the, the financial trajectory that our clients are on. And I'd like to think 
Because if, if those same people are also working with a financial planner who serves as a filter on bad financial decision making, then their risk of fault sort of approaches zero. Right. And right. lenders should be willing to price their loans accordingly. And found a private bank that was willing to do that. And they do. And so anytime our clients are buying a new home, or in many cases recently refinancing existing homes, we help them to shop around to create a competitive situation and then to engage with the private banking partnership that we have to end up with the lowest possible rate. And I'd say in most cases, the group we work with is significantly below market and the client works with them. And and what does that mean in practice? It's like, well, we'll save you an eighth of a point. We'll save you a quarter of a point. Do you even get more of a discount than that? It's like, what's what's the context overall for? It depends on the situation. If I had to estimate in aggregate, it's probably more like half a percent or more for the typical loan. And not always. Sometimes there are unique circumstances where our relationship doesn't win and, and we are excited for them to go with someone we don't work with. But on average, I'd say it's about 50 basis points discount. And we definitely have a handful of clients for whom that discount is saving them more in interest, mortgage interest per year than they are paying us in fees. And yeah, you know, it's it's people who happen to have a big mortgage and a small investment portfolio, which maybe is right, right. not not entirely independent things, right? right? But uh-huh. <laughs> that introduction alone sort of is more than they pay us in fees, and you know, just in terms of a ability to convey <laughs> value yeah. to a client, that that is a win. And so the private banking relationship is the big one. We have other smaller things like that. Some insurance providers have been willing to price our clients as a group instead of as individuals when they're buying private, particularly long-term disability insurance, because they're all they're all working for the same company anyway. So they're willing to oh. sort of provide some sort of group discounted coverage for those who have had to buy private insurance. And not all of them do because the benefits at the, these firms are, are often more than generous enough, right. that that has been helpful in those cases. But that's an interesting angle. When, when all your clients are in a single niche, in a single domain with common jobs and common roles and even common firms of only one of three, that you essentially can facilitate you know, group DI or group insurance benefits simply because the, your aggregation of clients fits that niche, even though you're not going through the employer directly. Right. And so how do you... Well, I, so I guess two questions. One, is this actually part of the revenue model for you? Like, do you participate in mortgage origination fees and and compensation for group insurance, or or is this structured solely as a well, if we get them enough of a discount, they'll just like paying our fee more anyway, so I'll get it on the fee side. Yeah, no, it, 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 we are entirely fee only. We have one line item, one income line item on our income sta- on our company income statement, and it is you know fees for service to clients. So no, all of those are just arranged in an effort to provide the most possible value to our clients. And we think that sort of comes around back to us via happier clients and and more referred colleagues. And then how do you find these kinds of relationships and and set them up? Like I, I wouldn't even know exactly who to call to say, hey, can I get my clients 
25 to 50 basis points off a mortgage rate. Yeah. Each one has been established differently. I would say the best way to do it, and this is probably true for anybody working with any niche, is ask your existing clients who they work with. Do you, hmm. do you love them? If so, may I have an introduction? And, and then we have to try to evaluate them for ourselves. So find out who they're working with, who by definition already understands the marketplace, at least to some extent, because they're working with them and then call them and say, hey, we have a shared client. I have like a hundred more just like them. If you want to work with us, talk to us about what you can do to work with us together. Right. I think you are defining collective buying power. <laughs> Excellent. And and for in, for insurance, we have we have one group that we refer to primarily, and they're great for our niche. Same for the private banking. For estate planning, as we all know, that is a state by state game. So we need sort of at least one in every state where our clients exist. So that was a little trickier, but we've built that up over time too. So talk to us about what this looks like from a business model perspective. How do you actually charge clients for this? Are you a planning fees firm? Are you an AUM firm? Are you a retainer firm? Since these are, are some pretty high income folks and I guess may or may not have the assets. So it sounds like they built them up pretty quick. What does it look like from a business model perspective? Yeah. So we still charge a percentage of AUM, a pretty traditional RIA tiered model, starting at just under 1% of the portfolio being managed and sort of tiering down from there. I think our average client pays us about 80 basis points. And I have, I have spent dozens of hours, if not hundreds of hours, thinking about what the right fee model is, as probably many of your listeners have. You know, yep. I sort of recognize the intellectual inconsistency of charging based on AUM, charging based on the portfolio when the value comes from so many other things. We have evaluated everything. We've evaluated percentage of net worth, percentage of income, retainer based on complexity, retainer that's the same for everybody, hourly. We've evaluated all of it and ultimately sort of circle back to a conclusion I've heard you, I've heard you say a few times, but you know, what do they say about democracy? It's, it's the worst form of government except for all the others. For, all of it. Yep. for us percentage of AUM is the worst fee model except for all the others. I think when you bake everything into it, what's best for the client, what's best for us, what's operationally feasible, we ultimately land on, yeah, it still makes sense. And you know, I don't know if that will be the case 10 years from now, but it, but, but it's how we do it now. Well, and, and again, at the end of the day, when you're working with clients that have such high incomes and such saving power, where you quote unquote, and anyone either will have a sizable portfolio or will make one very quickly. This isn't even just some of us I maybe mean, like I've, I've got a high income doctor who makes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And like, if this goes really well in 10 years, maybe they can get to a, to a half million dollar portfolio. If I'm you know trying to ratchet up my minimums, like you got clients that may get to half a million dollar portfolio in 18 to 24 months of saving if they're saving aggressively. So even non-AUM clients get there pretty darn quick, I would think. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and and an interesting note on the income trajectory, one of the unintended benefits of focusing so narrowly on, you know, just a handful of firms is we have become the unintended sort of data set for the income trajectory over time. And so for the most part, if you are a first or second or third year partner even at at any of these firms, you have no idea 
what that trajectory looks like going forward. Hmm. They just tell you how much you made that year and you're happy about it. And so to the extent that a lot of the relationship is based on our ability to accurately model their financial projections going forward, when we can do that for them better than they can do and provide some insight about what's coming around the corner for them, that's a powerful <laughs> differentiator. Interesting. But I, I wish I, I wish I could say I anticipated that one in advance, but the reality is it just sort of we fell backwards into it. Interesting. So just you actually work with so many people in your niche that you have better benchmarking data around what they earn than what they can actually figure out for themselves. Yeah, and that's part of the reason sort of I have to, we we want to be so sensitive about it about sharing what that is because it is it is not ours to share. We have just happened to aggregate it and we treat that pretty sacredly and and don't want to share with with those who it doesn't belong to. Well, and and I'm struck as well around just the dynamics of sort of charging fees and and proving out your worth. You have this what to me at least was fascinating like cost benefit analysis cal- like calculator on your website that just asks clients about a dozen different questions like what is your time worth to you, right? For all of them, this is going to be like $1,000 an hour or something. What is your time worth to you? How much time do you spend managing your own finances? Uh, you know, Here's what the data says. You can generate an additional value from tax loss harvesting or from rebalancing or behavioral coaching. So let me know what your assets under management are. Like All those different value of advice studies that can kind of convert it into a portion of their AUM fee. And you like literally do the math for them of, you know, based on your portfolio and your income and the value of your time and the different services that we offer, like, here's our fee and here's the value you're going to receive that it adds up to. And like, it just struck me, A, it's it's a cool way to actually take all of that research out there and just sort of operationalize it into a way to interact with clients. B, I thought it was particularly striking because it's still in your management consultant terms where you're like it's literally called cost benefit analysis like this is very consultant oriented you go through the guided questionnaire it gives you a spreadsheet style grid of how everything lines up for you and and other options that they might have out there and it, it just it it struck me both an interesting way to present the fee discussion and and have the fee discussion and also just that e- even down to how you present and talk about fees it's it's all couched in the in the terms and approach of management consultants. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a value of financial advice calculator. It's a cost benefit economic analysis calculator. <laughs> yeah, as as we like to say, it is on brand. And yeah, it, it it was sort of a pet project of all of ours because in pretty much every introductory conversation with a potential client, we're having some version of that conversation anyway. Right? These are extraordinarily an- analytical people and they're doing the math in their head anyways. So they you know, right. they know what they're going to pay. There's no fooling anyone because it's in percentages and not dollars. They know, right. they know what they're going to pay and they start to hear the value proposition and say, is it worth it? And so they would, you know, often, if not, you know, nearly always ask us for our sort of take, walk me through the value proposition. And the challenge is always two things. One, compared to what, right? Some of the clients we're meeting have have all of their money in a checking account, while some are right. are managing their portfolio very well at Vanguard and sort of doing 
you know, the, the basics of financial planning on their own. So you need to say compared to what, and two, just different people value different things differently. Right. Some people really value, value behavioral coaching to sort of help them to prevent them from making bad decisions. Other people hear that and say, yeah, that, that's not really worth anything to me. And so our, our, the goal was to build a tool that sort of addressed both of those problems. And it was hard, hard to do. I might not do it again if I was starting from scratch. And then sort of once we had the, the tool built the way we wanted to, it was hard to get it sort of compliant, right? And working with our compliance attorney. Yeah, I would imagine there's a, you want to do the math at that level with what at the end of the day are still kind of some broad-based estimate studies. Like, you know, I can't prove the counterfactual around what your, like, I can't prove the counterfactual around what behavioral mistakes you would have made without me. I, I kind of have to make some assumptions based on, broad data about behavior gap that may or may not apply to you. So I I would I would imagine there were a couple of layers of disclaimers that just have to be added of like here's how we got all these numbers if you want to vet them, which some of them probably do. Both legal disclaimers and just normal English language saying here's here's sort of how we're oversimplifying and and take this with a grain of salt. And we wanted it to be helpful to clients and we didn't want it to just be a tool that said work with us no, no matter what you whatever you put in and so sort of it is structured as a i think 12 or 13 question interview that the client walks through and all they do is answer questions about themselves you know how are you doing this now how valuable is this to you how much you know how much is it worth to, to have someone do your taxes for you and the net result is the cost of our service for them the their self described value of the service for them and then compare that against again an oversimplified calculation of the same for their other options you know what if they were what what's the cost benefit if they do it themselves at Vanguard or Fidelity or Schwab and so yeah we just wanted to <laughs> it, it was more of a fun thing to see if we could build and it will never be perfect and we don't pretend that it is but I think it speaks to who, who we work with so talk to us more about this direction of going into the niche in the first place and and what led you to the point of of making this transition given what you were doing previously in the industry sure sort of ha- i'd be happy to walk through from the start if that's helpful sort yeah. of even pre geometric days but so i've been an advisor for 12 or 13 years now but the story should probably start with my dad, shout out to Jay Leonard, who, when my sister and I were were kids or sort of preteens, let's say, as an encore career, started an RIA firm in an office attached to our house in suburban New Jersey. And I sort of now recognize he was doing a lot of things right before before others were. So he he was fee only right from the start. He was doing some legitimate financial planning before that was cool. He was early on sort of the passive investing trend, and he was sort of one of the first advisors working with dimensional funds. Maybe worth mentioning. So he himself got his MBA at University of Chicago in the late 60s, where sort of the efficient market hypothesis was first being introduced. He actually took Professor Gene Fama, now Nobel Laureate Gene Fama's first course in the efficient market hypothesis. So safety sure, cool. he, he, he was in on that trend pretty early. And yeah, just started applying it for clients, mostly 
family and friends as a little second career business when I was in middle school and high school. And so that was what I was exposed to. And that was sort of in the air at home and, and what we talked about around the dinner table. And uh, yeah, so I think I always had it in the back of my head that I might do that. It just appealed to me that he was doing right what he believed to be right for clients and seemed to be genuinely helping them. And I'd say the subject matter appealed to me. He introduced me to John Bogle's books and then William Bernstein's books and, and, and financial planning topics. And I always thought it was interesting. And so, yeah, I think it was always in the back of my head that I might like to do that. <laughs> As a total aside, I sometimes wonder, you know, if my parents had done something totally different, if my, if my, yeah. if my mom had, you know, owned and operated a chain of car washes, would that be, is that what I would be doing now? Would I be, would I be listening to podcasts about car washes and would I be, become an Indian yeah. geek about car washes? And impossible to say, but if I'm being honest with myself, the answer is very possibly yes. And I would like to think I would enjoy it. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that. You landed here because you've got an analytical brain and this was what your family set you up for. So here we are. Yeah, I, I, I think it's healthy just to acknowledge the, the role that randomness plays in our lives. And, and I yeah. feel lucky that my dad happened to choose this and I happened to, you know, it happened to appeal to me. And so, yeah, I think it was always in my mind as an option. And I went to college down in Atlanta at Emory University and majored in economics and sort of still kind of had this in my head while I was doing that. And after college, moved to Boston and worked for a small boutique consulting firm, much smaller than the firms we work for now. Worked there for three years and I, I liked it and I liked the subject matter. But yeah, it was always in my head that I kind of wanted to do financial planning. And maybe even more specifically, I, I wanted to own my own business and build a business. I think that's really what appealed to me. And so after <clears throat> three years at the consulting firm, applied to MBA programs and was lucky enough to get into Harvard Business School. And so, yeah, spent the next two years there, which were great, really, really fun, really intellectually stimulating, made some really good friends, including met my wife there who was at the law school at the time. So yeah, a productive couple years. Mm -hmm. And while there, you know, others were preparing to, you know, want to be executives at big companies. And I was preparing to move back to New Jersey and join my dad and try to help him build his business. And so I did that straight from school. That was 2007. And at the time, dad's practice was still, you know, a, a solo advisor with one assistant, probably serving about 40 clients, doing a really good job for them. And we said, let's have a go at this and see if we can, you know, build this into a, a proper business and continue to try to do it right. And so that's what we did for the next seven or eight years. And yeah, those were those were pretty special years for me just to get to work alongside my dad and learn from him and get to know him sort of from one adult to another in a way that I never mm -hmm. otherwise would. And 
and same for my mom, <laughs> where she and I would have lunch every day to get to know her as an adult in the same way was 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 great. And the plan had always been. It was also successful. Like it grew from a very small firm to let's say a, a mid-size RAA. And the plan had always been whenever dad wanted to formally retire, I would buy his share of the firm and keep running it as it was. And somewhere along the way, I don't know exactly where it happened, found I didn't love the role of being an advisor to our generalist client base. And maybe for reasons that sort of I should, I should have anticipated in advance, but I didn't. You know, most of our clients were retirees and near retirees. And so, you know, different work style, different communication style, and more than anything else, just different stage of life such that yep. the financial slash life slash career decisions they were facing were things I could try to mm. help them with academically, but that I never really understood emotionally. They weren't things I had gone through myself or were thinking through for myself. And so at the same time, developed a little pocket of clients who were friends from business school and their colleagues and just found the opposite with them. You know, same work style, same life stage. And for all the opposite reasons, just were the relationships were that much more productive and and fun. And so ultimately sort of made the hard decision with sort of talking through with dad and with his support, we decided to sell that firm. And I spun off with the sort of 20 or so client families that met the, 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 the niche I really liked working with and founded geometric and so and dad became an advisor for the buyer we ended up selling it to a large sort of nationwide ra that shared our investment philosophy shared our client service model we had sort of admired them from afar for a while and dad worked for them for two or three years before he retired we can talk more about how that went not necessarily as scripted i was going to ask like so who who did you who did you sell to and and how did you make the decision that that was who you wanted to sell to? Because I know that's a a very challenging decision unto itself. Yeah. So the firm was acquired by now known Buckingham Strategic Wealth at the time, Buckingham Asset Management in St. Louis. And yeah, I, I, had, I, I had read all of Larry Swedro's books, who's their head of research and sort of always admired that, admired him and admired their investment philosophy and sort of patterned a lot of how we did investments at dad and my firm and how we now do it at geometric on, on that. And so how did we decide the initial screen was we worked with dimensional funds to identify a list of firms who met the various criteria we wanted around investment philosophy and size and service model. And, you know, do they custody with fidelity who is our custodian at the old firm and, and a bunch of other factors and got a list and I spoke to all of them many times and sort of narrowed it and narrowed it until we ultimately decided on Buckingham. And yeah, that, that transaction happened in early 2015. Okay. So for you guys, the investment philosophy, it sounds like was kind of a big driver in who you were picking. Like you literally went through DFA to find other firms that were DFA style. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's just in our blood, right? I, t- I told you dad's background and that, that I, I have 
sort of always been a boglehead and believer in index funds and dimensional funds, et cetera. It, it wouldn't have sort of crossed our minds to let our clients work with someone who didn't do it that way. Right. Obviously, there are there are variations within that that it's it's okay to be a little bit different. For us, it wasn't. We didn't want anyone who's was selling their predictive ability to our clients. And right. So yeah, that that sort of instantly boils the ocean down to at the time, you know, only maybe 10 or 12 firms that sort of met all the criteria. And then it was a matter of interviewing them and, and getting to know them and their leadership and their plans. And, and by the way, their experience with M&A and talking to others who had been acquired, et cetera. And yeah, that was the process for us. And so when, when you pulled the trigger, so your your father went to Buckingham with the existing clients, you spun off with 20 or so of your own, you said. Right. So am I right? Like that's that's when the split happened. I guess just it was negotiated as part of the deal. Like Buckingham, you're not buying everyone. You're buying everyone but these 20 because I'm going this direction with these 20. Right. So did that actually create weirdness around the buyout for what I'm presuming was a firm that was still materially owned by your father? Or like, did you have to buy those from him? Was that just part of the split? Cause you'd brought those in, in the first place. Like, how do you actually yeah. untangle that spinoff? Cause there's, you know, Buckingham, I'm sure would have bought those. If that was an option for them to buy them, there was dollars on the table. I, I bought them from dad at the same terms as okay. Buckingham acquired the rest of the firm. And it was just subtracted from the, sort of the, the, whatever I would have received from the acquisition in the first place. So okay. more than 80% of the firm went to Buckingham and, and you know, less than 20 came, came and formed Geometric. But right, it was obviously a, a different cohort that, that came with Geometric. And that uh, had to be, we were fully transparent with the exact list. And, you know, I think there was some concern on Buckingham's part and they they are owned in part by Focus Financial that it was an unusual situation and is Andrew just going to try to <laughs> recruit away all of the clients transferred to Buckingham and so I had to assure them of what my plans were and that that was not the case and yeah that that, that has not come close to happening so I think it worked out well on that front and so when you spun off and went out on your own with with 20 clients like what was the size of that client base or asset base like what did you actually get to seed geometric with yeah i i don't remember entirely it was something like 20 clients with approximately 20 million dollars in assets under management and it was enough so that i am very lucky to have gotten to skip the you know really challenging early months early years that that yeah. that most go through and well you i guess you you lived them in your father's firm while you were also building on that end, I guess, more gradually. Yeah. So by the time you're going out from scratch, you get to see with 20 clients and 20 million. Or maybe I lived them when, when my dad was first starting, right? He, yeah. he, he was the breadwinner in our family and my mom worked at my elementary school. And yeah, I saw it was hard to build from scratch. I guess I witnessed it that way and am grateful that I got to join an existing firm with him and and got to as you said see geometric with with sort of a critical mass which, which both you know th there's the economics that that were helpful but there was also just 
you know, I, I needed, I wanted to make sure it was going to be a going concern for, for our client's sake. And, you know, nobody knows for sure that that's going to be the case. And so I was lucky that sort of there were 20 client families that really fit the, the niche as we defined it at the time to start Geometric. And so talk to us about just marketing and attracting clients in the growth trajectory. I'm just, you went out five years ago at you know, 20 clients with 20 million. You're now at 110 clients and 250 million. Like that is, that is a lot of growth in five years, starting with just a seed base of clients. So how does marketing business development work I guess for you in general and kind of within this niche that just you've had $230 million come in in five years into a new firm. I guess a portion of that's market growth, recent pullback notwithstanding, but like that's a lot of new clients and flows into a business that you just got started a few years ago. So how does, how does growth work in this, in this niche and, and bringing people in? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, <laughs> one client at a time introduced by existing clients. It's a little bit more involved in that. But yeah, when starting Geometric, the mandate was really, okay, if, if my wife and I were the target clients, how, how would I want everything to work? Who would, the, who would the advisors be? What would their academic and professional backgrounds be? You know, what would scope of services be? What technology would they use? What, how would, what would the cadence of communication be, et cetera, and just try to build the firm that I would use. And that was fun, you know, get to hit reset on everything that dad and I had tried and learned and sort of start from scratch with, with the firm I would want to be a client of. And so I think that the, the niche originally defined, the niche was high earning mid-career professionals in business and law, which at the time I thought was a really narrow niche and was kind of terrifying, right? Like that's already... Mm-hmm excluding 99 point something percent of the population. <laughs> and and that's scary. And as anybody who works with a niche, like it takes a little confidence to start narrowing and narrowing. But with that group, it started to resonate, right? That broader group, it started to resonate and got a handful of early clients and, you know, maybe went from 20 to 30. I don't, I don't really remember, but at some point sort of started looking at the broader niche and thinking even within this, there is a subset for whom we do our best work. And what if we sort of narrowed it a little bit to the next step was partners at sort of professional services firms. And then that worked a little bit better and moved a little bit faster and clients were a little bit more likely to to tell their colleagues and felt like our services were a little more refined for them, et cetera. And then who do you really like working with in that cohort? It's for me, it was the the partners at those three firms, McKinsey, Bain and BCG. And it was never sort of official that sort of leaped the divide from, from one definition of the niche to another. But the more things we did to nudge it in that direction, the better it was for clients and the better Mm. it was for, for us. And that sort of has driven all the growth. I will say, the one sort of proactive marketing that we have done, which is sort of, again, can't be done without a really hyper-specialized niche, is when we had about 10 clients at one of those firms, I wrote a white paper called 
financial planning for partners of Bain and Company and shared it with our clients and shared it on LinkedIn and our clients shared it with their colleagues. And that drove a lot of introductions and and still does. I think that that white paper has Mm. been shared around the office many times. And a lot of people we talk to for the first time say something like, I read your white paper two years ago and have sort of been meaning to call since then. So I sometimes joke like that, you know, that paper paper has put my (laughs) my kids through college. (laughs) And and it's only because, you know, it's a, by the time we had 10 clients at that company, we were speaking their language and understood their needs and concerns and pain points and, and wrote a paper accordingly. And I would say the paper is more introducing their questions and not providing all of the answers. That would be difficult to do in a seven-page white paper, but it was sort of just to demonstrate sort of how they should be thinking about it and that we understand who they are and, and what they need. And so, you know, the one form of sort of proactive marketing we've done with that is we shared it on LinkedIn directly with partners of that firm who were not clients or, or offered to share it with them via you know LinkedIn direct emails. And hmm. a, a reasonably high percentage took us up on it, given how sort of hyper-specific the title of the paper is. And right. a reasonably high percentage of those people became clients and to the point where we stopped doing that in, because we were having trouble sort of meeting the... <laughs> meeting the demand and we're still to some degree paying playing catch up with that <laughs> and and I recognize sort of how the privilege associated with being able to say that well it it certainly makes the point for just how how impactful that is cuz I was going to ask you like if you had such good success with the with the one for Bain like why haven't you published financial planning for partners at McKinsey and financial planning for partners at BCG so it sounds like the answer is because it might actually work, right? And and you know, we we have them written. We haven't shared them because what happens when we do? And the challenge of all of this is, as I mentioned, our advisors are career changers from that industry, and often from those firms. And those are hard people to find, hard people to hire, right. hard people to train. They're career changers. It is different than posting the job on the CFP website or from hiring someone out of college and grooming them into it. And so that has that was a decision <laughs> made early that if I guess my feeling was if I could find someone at let's say McKinsey who was a personal finance geek and just had never done it professionally, I could fill in the gaps of their subject matter more easily than I could find someone who had all the subject matter knowledge but didn't understand the cultures and people at those firms. And so I think that has worked well. And part of the sort of validation process with potential clients is, okay, this advisor used to work at McKinsey. And therefore that says this and this and this about them. And they can be my, I will view them as my, you know, professional equal and, and, and outsource all of this to them. Downside how do you find those people? How do, you, how do you train them from from having never done it? And that's sort of the limitation on growth. And frankly, I don't think we want to be growing faster than we are. We can talk about that, but the goal is not to be the biggest firm here. And so, yeah, that's sort of the that's that's why there hasn't been proact more proactiveness on the marketing front. So, what's surprised you the most about 
trying to build your own advisory business? Yeah, and I'd probably go all the way back to when I first started with dad. And it was how emotionally challenging it was for me to be between people and their money. You know, I, I had read the books. <laughs> I knew uh, bo- both sort of on investment philosophy and methodology and even sort of the behavioral side of it. And I said I joined dad in 2007. After that came to 2008 and 2009. I was say, that was, was some good timing. Right, right. I joined dad in July or August 2007. I think the stock market peaked in October 2007 and was largely a straight line downwards from there. And I found myself sort of a brand new advisor in between clients and their money and emotionally unprepared for that. And in many cases, most cases, those clients were my parents' age. And I sort of wasn't maybe mature enough or, or emotionally ready to serve that role for them, to to try to tell them sort of to empathize with the emotions that they were feeling, the understandable fear that they were feeling at that time. I found that really, really difficult, felt it emotionally, felt it viscerally, like had trouble sleeping and sort of wondered, is, is this for me? And, and I know I'm not alone in that feeling. I know a lot of advisors were feeling the same thing at the same time. It still took me by surprise because I felt like I was so prepared going in in terms of subject matter knowledge, et cetera. It was still a, a smack in the face of sort of the reality of the job. And I'd like to think sort of over time have become more emotionally prepared for that so that, you know, whenever the, ha- the next one happens, whether that's right now or 10 years from now, I'm more capable of handing, handling it without it affecting me so deeply. But time will tell. So what was the low point for you in the in the journey? Yeah, I guess the part of the story we didn't tell was so so dad became an employee advisor of Buckingham and it wasn't perfectly smooth for you know some reasons that I think were entirely predictable, right? Dad was a business owner for for 20 years and definitely had this shopkeeper's mentality and to move from that to an employee of a much larger business where you sort of lose control over decision-making and and even in some way the client experience, that was hard for him and he bristled at that. Hmm. I think he, he, he and I were prepared for sort of him giving up the, the, the strategic and business decision-making. I don't think we were prepared for sort of how it would feel when he gave up the, the client experience part of it. And the best way I can put it is when dad and I had a meeting at the old firm, this, this is, this is not a metaphor. This is, this is a, a literal story. He would go outside and sweep the walk that led into our office. You know, the, the, the definition of a shopkeeper mentality never sort of occurred to him to do anything else. And I think we ran the business, every other part of the business like that, or at least we tried. And you have to give that up when you work for a bigger firm and and Buckingham is a is an exceptionally good firm and they are doing what they believe to be right for clients it was just hard for that to be a different thing than in some cases what dad thought was to be right and and he had a hard time there was also some you know more specific things like the advisors they selected to take over the client relationships didn't the the first wave of advisors didn't work out and had to be replaced with one 
advisors who are now quite good, but you know that left dad scrambling and concerned for his clients, etc. And so the reason I pick that as the low point is I felt responsible for that. I had hmm. one, I had sort of orchestrated the fact that there was a transaction in the first place. It was my decision and dad, because he's a loving father, went along with it. And, you know, I picked the firm and and planned ahead as much as possible. But, you know, when when it was actually time, once the transaction occurred, I exited stage left and was off and running with Geometric. And he was left trying hmm. to figure it out on his own. And I, I had you know, felt very responsible for that in a, in any way where it went badly and felt a lot of guilt about it and s- still do. He and I sort of talked every day for the whole, for the whole two or three year period, the, the ups and downs, but, but I couldn't do anything about it. And yeah, so, so it, it, you know, at a time when I would have liked my dad to sort of be doing the, the victory lap on his career hmm. to see him struggling and to feel responsible for that was, was undoubtedly sort of the, the low point in the journey for me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge around just the kind of the sale and 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 tuck-in process of you know I mean there's a subset of people I think just don't want the sometimes overwhelming number of decisions you have to make and things you have to be responsible for yeah. in running your own business. I mean that that's why like there's you know there are independent models and there are employee models in the advisor world. And there will always be, you know, we, you know, we saw independent broker dealers and independent RAs break away and, and distinguish themselves from the employee models of wirehouses. And now a lot of the IBDs and RAs are growing so large that they're becoming employee models and reinventing the wirehouse model, you know, slightly different underlying economics, but like that split of employee versus independent is just, some of us have brains wired one way and some of us have brains wired the other way and, and neither is necessarily right or wrong until you put yourself into the opposite channel of where you're naturally aligned and then it gets hard. If you uh, would prefer that employee world, the independent world just feels awful and overwhelming and too many decisions and, and all this burden of responsibility you don't want. And if you like that stuff and you like dealing with that stuff, it's really hard to go to an employee model. I love that you have always sort of pounded the table that that the small solo practitioner will probably always exist because I am of the belief that some of the best advisors in the country with some of the happiest clients are working in sort of total anonymity in home offices and shared office space yep. and just sort of obsessing over their clients. And that should always exist. And so, you know, the whole experience has sort of changed my What's the goal for Geometric? I like to say that we only want Geometric to grow to the extent that it benefits the clients to do so and is more fun for us. And thus far, the second point has undoubtedly been true. And the first point has also, but it's harder, right? As we grow, for example, just sort of bringing tax services in-house, as we talked about earlier, bringing some estate planning capabilities in-house, that just requires a little more scale than we can have. Also, just having sort of multiple partners and redundancies and you know two heads thinking about a client situation, et cetera, I do believe results in better outcomes. That said, I don't know if that sort of is true forever. I think... It is difficult to scale to a size 
without talent getting diluted and the client experience getting worse. And, and so I like to look to, well, firms outside of our industry, including McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, how have they grown so big while sort of every partner is still so, so good? And obviously that's not universally true, but pretty close. And it's hard. And I think it's not always the case in the RIA industry. And, and I think we only want to grow to the extent that it is true. And the hard part is, well, well, one, it is no longer only my decision, of course, right? That's the nature of having partners. And more importantly, having a team of people who depend on the growth of the firm to advance their own careers and create opportunities for themselves. And, you know, I, I take that really, really seriously. I take that responsibility very seriously. So it's easy to say you're only going to grow to size. I don't know how you actually turn it off. So instead, we just focus on, okay, how is scaling going to benefit our very narrow slice of the world client and and work on that? So anything you wish you'd done differently as you launched Geometric? Like anything you know now that you wish you could go tell you from five years ago? Yeah. I mean, I've been lucky that, that geometric has largely been, you know, a straight line up. It's easy to say sort of, I would have focused, you know, on the niche earlier, but, but we did, we did it, we did it pretty early. On 230 million of flows later in five years Apparently, still got it in reasonably early enough. Yeah, so it has gone well, and you know that's not to say there haven't been a million and one mistakes made <laughs> along the way every single day, right? It's just none of them have been anything approaching existential, right? And and they they are necessary, right? I, I, maybe others can learn <laughs> can learn from books and from mentors, etc. Like to some degree got to make the mistakes ourselves at least i do and so I, I don't think i can't point to anything really big would have done differently because they have they have any 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 of those mistakes have proven to be learning experiences that sort of led to where the firm is today and so what advice would you give younger advisors looking to come in and become a financial planner today yeah, probably not surprisingly, it would be to over time find the group of people for whom you can be the best in the world, who for whom you can sort of honestly say I am the best advisor for this person. And so that's, you know, takes time and probably happens with trial and error and doesn't need to be pre-planned before you become a, an advisor or before even before you start your own firm. But I think that should be the goal because once you find that, you can feel really good about what you're doing and, and chances are like the clients will know it and recognize it and it will work out better for you. So, so when I'm talking to new advisors entering the industry or people thinking about specializing more, I, I say sort of try to try to find picture the Venn diagram of overlapping circles what what is the overlap between you know people with unique and repeatable financial planning needs people with sort of the, the wherewithal to pay your fees in, in sort of the service model you want to deliver maybe people who sort of naturally are in your personal network and people you like spending your days with 
And if you sort of find the commonality between that in your world, that sounds like a good niche to me. So what comes next for for you and the firm? You know, in, in the short term, I think it's sort of trying to <laughs> scale up to meet the demand in a manner that doesn't impact the quality of what's being delivered to clients. And so sort of finding ways to find and train new advisors a little less in, in a little less of a one-off manner, but really it's just sort of keep do, keep doing what we're doing and doing a good job for clients and trying to trying to build the team to match what they need. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. So you're you're off on this incredible trajectory for building a successful business already much larger than the average firm. But how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I think professionally, it's just, do I feel proud of what we are putting out there in the world? Do I feel proud of sort of the the team we are building? And the answer to that is like a a definitive yes. And do I feel proud of the quality of the service we are providing to clients? And I think that is an unqualified yes also. So I do feel good about where we are, you know, but that's, that's just professional. And that's, that's, I think a small part of the overall answer is, which is personally, it's just the quality of my relationships. How, how is my relationship with my, with my two little daughters, age five and two? How's my relationship with my wife, with my, with my parents, sister and, and friends? And all of those mean a lot more to me than anything we've talked about so far. And so as long as those are healthy and positive, and, and I'm happy to say that they are, then yeah, then life, life in general feels, feels successful. So I guess that's my, my rather soft answer. No, I, I think it's a great answer, and and uh, I think highlights well the the same kind of challenges and conversations that you're having with the clients you serve, which, as you noted, are kind of similar in in age, right? Late late thirties and early forties when you're thirty nine, and going through those similar challenges of building career and building income and trying to balance career and life and starting a family and having kids. Yeah, you know, to me, it's part of what supports the authenticity and I'm, I'm sure is part of why you've had such successful re- resonance with the with the clients that you're working with because you're you know you, you've got a, a definition for what your success looks like that I think will resonate with others and so when you help them find that path it, it feels good for them too and they want to want to pay you for your services yeah a, a conversation I love to have with clients you know is the client speaking how I, I know I'm gonna make whatever very large number next year and it might double the year after that but my kids are little and I don't get to tuck them to bed every night and that that's a hard decision I don't I don't you know I don't think there's a right answer there so as any good fin- financial planner will tell you it really comes down to life planning and sort of finding people who align with your values and then having meaningful conversations with them is the part of the job I like the most well, amen I love it. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. (laughs) 
Thank you, Michael. And I should thank you for, I have learned an incredible amount from you over the years. And I know many, many others have. Everyone on my team (laughs) reads and follows your stuff. So thank you for everything you have taught me over the years. My pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.